Today we start a new series. Uh, this series we are calling The Perfect Ten. The Perfect Ten, and it is essentially a series on the Ten Commandments. Please don't panic. Don't freak out. I know that usually when you think about the Ten Commandments for our culture, more times than not, they are viewed as like the Ten Prohibitions or the Ten Restrictions. This is not how it's going to be taught here for the next few weeks, next 10 weeks as we unpack this series. What we're going to do, hopefully, is to give you a fresh perspective on the Ten. Uh, because in our culture, we've looked at the 10 in a way that I would say that doesn't always honor the way that God intended for it to exist within our community. They are 10 things, usually in our culture, we view them as 10 things that the church uses to control us, control our behavior, or something that prevents and prohibits us from living a free and a full life. And what I want to tell you is that that's not at all true. That the Ten Commandments were not created to restrict your life, but the Ten Commandments were actually given to us to bring freedom to our lives. And uh, our current perception is um, one that has much to do with our culture's perception of God. That God, especially in the Old Testament, is uh, he's violent, uh, he's mean, and judgmental. This, this is kind of how we read the Old Testament, that the God there, that's who he is. And then something happened in the New Testament. Uh, God had a son, and because God had a son, his nice part showed up. He became loving. You know, that's how, how parents, you, you, ever, you ever seen like a dad who was kind of like hard and, and mean and, you know, and all those things, and then when their child is born, you see their softer side? You know, you ever see that? That's kind of how we view God from the Old Testament to the New Testament. That God was mean. God had a baby. And when, when God had a baby, God, God found his nice side. That's, that's not what the Bible communicates at all. What we hope to do is to give you a clear understanding of that. And so when, when we talk about this, there, there are a couple of things that's at play. One of the first things is really just purely bad biblical interpretation. And what happens is there are some things in Scripture. Scripture, this is going to sound terrible. There are some things in Scripture that we read and we give credit to God where credit ought not be given to God. And I, I ain't going to even unpack that right now. If y'all want to have a latter conversation about that, we can. But there are some things we'll say, hey, man, there's God. God said, man, what a blessing it is to crush the heads of our enemies' babies. That's, that's actually in the Bible. God didn't say that. All right. So there's bad biblical interpretation, but there's also our culture's influence that has us reading the Bible or reading against the text. Basically, what that means is because God has been misrepresented, oftentimes we read a positive in the light or through the lens of a negative understanding. And so it could be something affirming, and we think that it's something that is restricting, and we'll, we'll demonstrate that uh, here in a moment. What you need to know is basically this. The same loving, caring, and compassionate God that we know in the New Testament is present in the Old Testament. That he didn't take on a different character. God did not evolve. God has been the same God yesterday, today, and forevermore. And this is kind of where our story begins. 
story that we're going to be unpacking, walking into the tent. It begins basically with the story of Joseph in Genesis. If you remember the great dreamer who was once a prisoner and a slave, then became the second in charge of all of Egypt. And so what happens is that eventually uh, Joseph dies and a new king of Egypt comes to power. And when he does, he does not know Jacob and he sees how the, uh, the Hebrew people were growing in the land. And rather than looking at them at the possibility of them being great neighbors, what he saw was the ability to oppress them and make slaves of them. Which ultimately led to this in, in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 to 25. Listen to, to what it says. Years passed, and the king of Egypt died, but the Israelites continued to groan under the burden of slavery. They cried out for help, and their cry rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. See that? They're the same liberator that we read in the New Testament was present in the Old Testament. God saw the pain. He saw the captives and knew that he had to free them. And so here in our story, you know, you've seen the movies, Moses and the Prince of Egypt, the Ten Commandments, all of that, right? Moses is born during his time. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he sees that the Hebrews are growing. They're getting too massive. And he figures he's got to do something about it. And so he, he issues a decree and he tells, man, these two wonderful uh, women in, 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 in the Old Testament or in, G, uh, uh, in Genesis, or, I'm sorry, Exodus, about his plan. He, he tells Shifra and Pua, he says, hey, listen, you guys are midwives. You birthed these babies. Here's what I want you to do. Every, every male child that is born, I want you to throw it into the river. I want you to kill that baby. And these, these women, men, were strong, and they were strong believers, and they disobeyed the command of Pharaoh and, in an act of, of, of defiant, subversive disobedience and honor to God, and they refuse to. Pharaoh sees that the baby boys aren't being put to death. He issues a decree, check this out, to the entire land of Egypt, all the Egyptians, and he tells them, hey, when you see a baby Hebrew boy, throw that baby in the river. Just throw, throw the baby in the river. How cold-hearted do you have to be? Throw the baby in the river. Well, a lady has a baby, a baby boy, and she nurses that boy in privacy and in secrecy. And when he, began, he became too old, she puts him in the river. And he goes down the Nile River covered by reeds and by branches. And when he makes his way down the river, luck would have it, luck, that Pharaoh's daughter was bathing. And there she sees this beautiful baby boy crying and she sends her servants to grab him up out of the water. And when she does, she sees him. The two women who sees him goes and calls his very own mother. And she comes to actually nurture and raise him up as a Hebrew boy raised up in the house of Pharaoh among the elite. And then... Well, y'all know the story. I, I, I don't want to keep going. I just, my mind, I keep thinking about how amazing the story is. Moses grows up in the king's palace. He, he begins to learn and take on the personality of his people. He sees an Egyptian uh, who, is, who is taking advantage and abusing a, a Hebrew, an Israelite. He kills the Egyptian. The next day or there, soon after, there is two Hebrews fighting against one another. Moses sees them, confronts them about that, they let them know that 
there is word that Moses murdered an Egyptian. Moses then leaves and runs away to a place called Midian. There he meets God on the mountain, uh, at the the mountain in a burning bush. And God sends him back and he says, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And the story goes on and on there. You, You remember all that, right? So he goes and when he gets back to to, to Egypt, God says, I'm, I'm going to show my power through Moses, and he issues 10 plagues. You remember the 10 plagues? Did, did y'all know, parenthetically, that uh, whenever God usually wants to test us, it's with the number 10? I'm not really into numerology, but this is kind of fascinating. Y'all know that? All right, for instance, all right, we're, we're going to be talking through this series, and it's on the what? Ten Commandments, right? Because it's testing our faithfulness to God, right? All right. When God wants to test our faithfulness, uh, when it comes to our finances, it's through a tithe, which is how much? A tip. <laughs> Look at y'all. And, and when God wanted to show his power through the plagues in Egypt, how many were there? Ten. Okay. And then how many disciples are there? No, listen, some of y'all, some of y'all. Uh, George just said that there is Sunday school, small group. Uh, at the beginning of service, there are 12 disciples, not 10. Y'all need to show up at 8, 8, 8, 830 there and, and get, y'all, get, y'all, get y'all there. T- I'm sorry, I played that trick on y'all, my bad. After, after the final plague, Pharaoh allows, allows the Hebrew people to leave, right? And then they get to the sea, and Pharaoh's pursuing. Y'all remember the story. God parts the waters. The Israelites walk across on dry ground, and now they are a liberated people. But check out what God does for them. As they are a liberated people, God does a few things. First, he provides. As they're walking in in the wilderness, in a desert, God makes springs of water sprout up in the wilderness. Not only just randomly in the wilderness, but also water comes out of a rock. But not only that, because they were thirsty and hungry, on on, on one day, certain days, daily rather, they would receive quail that would just fall from the heavens. And this bread that they called manna, which literally means what is it? They didn't know what it was, so they just named it what is it? They had every day a chicken sandwich would fall from heaven. I mean, it was like Chick-fil-A in the desert each and every day. God provided for them. You know God's good. Chick-fil-A, praise his name. This would happen each and every single day. God provided for them. This is what God does. He liberates them from the hand and the control of Pharaoh. He provides for them in the wilderness. He shows them that he loves and he cares for them. Then how is it possible we can see that same God and turn around and think that he is violent, he is mean, and he doesn't care? Because that doesn't seem like the character of a God who doesn't have the best intentions and who does not love his children unconditionally. And so what happens then, after all this happens, about 50 days after they were delivered from the hand of Egypt, they have this conversation, and uh, and I love it, man. They have this conversation uh, because God recognizes his kids. And so he's done the work already to deliver the people from Egypt. The next step is to now deliver Egypt out of the people. Because for generations, they've been under control of an oppressive people. And whenever you find yourself in a dysfunctional, oppressive relationship, oftentimes, you know the old saying, hurt people do what? 
hurt people. And because they were a hurt people, these hurt, oppressed people didn't know what it was like to live as free people. So God had to figure out, now that I've got you free physically, I've got to free you spiritually, mentally, and emotionally so that you can learn how to live as a free people. We know this to be true. The proof is in verse 2. Listen to what the Lord says to them. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the Lord, out of the land of Egypt, and out of the house of slavery. When you read that verse, what you've got to know about that is that is essentially a preamble, like a, a prologue to the, rest of the, uh, to the rest of the commandments or to the Ten Commandments. I, I would say that as you're studying over this next ten weeks, we're in this series, a good, a good discipline would be this. Read verse 2 before you read every commandment. And then to make a whole lot more sense, so you'll see what God was trying to do. It sounds a whole lot better when God is saying, listen, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery, out of the house of slavery, then to say that prior to, now thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now thou shalt not steal. Now thou shalt not kill. It sounds a whole lot better when you add the preamble to it. So I love this moment because they're there. They're gathered in the wilderness, and they're at this mountain called Sinai, and, and Moses and, and Aaron and some of the priests go up to have this conversation with God. And the Bible says that God came down to have a conversation with them. I love this moment. I don't know how you envision, but I'm a visual per person. And so I, I, I thought about on my porch the other day as I was preparing for this, what, what did God look like as he was coming down? Now I'm going to give you all just a brief insight into my mind. Uh, because my God's different from yours. He's the same God, but just he look a little different. He talk a little different. Uh, my, my, God, my God had on some Timberland, some jeans, and a T-shirt. And, uh, and he came down from heaven like he was walking on, an, on a Brooklyn uh, stoop from New York with his hat turned around back. And when he sat down and he talked with the people, he chilled and posed for a moment because when you're from the hip-hop culture, you got to pose, you got to make sure that you're fresh. First, and his first word was, yo, that, that's my God. That's, that's literally the first thing that he said when he came down. He came down, got himself together. Yo, that's what God did as he was speaking to. I promise you that's how my God spoke. That's, that's my God. Now, your God may be different. Uh, I, I imagine Matt's God is like a, um, hmm, like a depressed songwriting author who speaks in poetry and urban soliloquies. That's, 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 that's that is such a nerdy joke, ain't it? That is, that's really bad. I mean, I don't know what your God looks like. That's just how my God, that's how Matt's God is. Like he, he says like, you know, deep ethereal things in language that the average person could communicate. And, uh, and then he cries about it. I mean, that's, that's, that's what Matt's got. I'm, I'm just serious. Anyway, um, so, so God comes down and he has this conversation with them and he introduces himself to them. I love this because you've been in bondage for 400 years. And for 400 years, you, you thought that this is who I am. But I want you to know, I've heard your cries. I've saw your pain. Now let me introduce you to who I really am. He says, I am the Lord your God. There, that's two words right there, man, that's significant, man, when he talks about himself. He says, I am Yahweh Elohim. 
That's a really important thing. You can't breeze past that because he's saying something specifically to us when he says that. He's saying, I am Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh is the name that the Hebrew people referred to their God. Yahweh or Jehovah. That, that's, it could be translated either way. Yahweh or Jehovah is the name that they communicate. Elohim is a name that they use to speak of most deities in that era, all right? So he says, I, I, I am Yahweh. I'm your God. I, I am your God. Elohim. I, 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 am, I am God of the universe. So when God introduces himself, here's what they heard. I'm the God that you've been praying for, the God that you've been praying to. I am Yahweh. I am Jehovah God. I am your God, your personal God. I am your servant, Savior. That's who I am. I am both that God, but also the God of the universe. I am Yahweh Elohim, your God who controls all things. You need to know that about your God. Because sometimes we think that our God, my God might be hip-hop, but he's also the God of everything else. Our God, your God, controls all things. Yahweh Elohim, he introduces himself to let them know that there is absolutely nothing that you have been experiencing that's outside of my power. I am your God. This is who I am for you. And he says, therefore... Since I am Yahweh Elohim, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. Now what you need to know, this isn't about God flexing his power now and authority on them. He's not saying, listen, I am your God who's also the God of the universe so that then he can tell them, now, respect my authority. This wasn't one of those moments. He's, he's not coming at them like that. He's saying something specific to them because they need to know exactly who he is and what he means to them. This also isn't about order. So when he says, thou shalt not have no other gods before me, he's not saying that, that I ought to be first and then the other gods ought to come after me. Uh, no, no, no. He, there's, there's no order, as a matter of fact. Did you know that? Like a, a healthy spiritual discipline is not saying, okay, God first. This is what we've been taught, right? God first, family, um, you know, work. And, you know, and all those things. We've been kind of taught that. And then when, when we learned that, that, that too many, especially men, were abusing that, we, we had to, you know, reorder again and say, God first, family, church, work. We, you know, we, we had to figure that out so that people would, would follow the order. The, the reality is, is that, that it doesn't matter which way you put it. It's all dysfunctional. You'll never be able to follow order. So it's not about the order of events or the system which you follow through. God ought never be first on your list. He should be the center of all that you do. So that if you want to love your family well, make God the center. If you want to do your best at your job, make God the center. If you want to do your best at school, make God the center. He ought not be first because he does not need to be on your list, your list of things to do and to check off. Because if you can just check off what you belong or what you uh, ascribe to God, then it's easy to dismiss God in the place where you don't want him to be. But if God is the center of all things, then what that does is it gives you the ability to healthily live your life in a manner where you make sure you take God with you wherever you are if you make him the center. It's not about a list of things. It's not about an order. Here's what the first commandment does. The first commandment protects against bondage to abusive people and relationships. 
the first commandment protects against bondage to abusive people. Thank you, sir. And relationships. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. It's protecting against abusive or bondage to abusive people and relationships. So when you combine verses 2 and 3, what you've got is basically God first and foremost defining. It's like his DTR statement. He's defining the relationship. Here is who I am to you. Now, since this is who I am to you, then this is how you and I live collectively together. I am your God, your deliverer, and you will have no other gods before me. So I, I love this because in, in Egypt, Egypt was a polytheistic culture. They, they worshiped many gods, right? And so, so, so God is making a declaration because this is what they've been accustomed to. They've been accustomed to all these other gods. And so God, God has made a statement in more ways than what you recognize. So check this out. In your own time, as a matter of fact, that's what I do. I'll, I'll put it on, uh, on Facebook and send it out through email so that you can look at it yourself. When you study each of the ten plagues, each of the ten plagues attacked a specific Egyptian god. All ten of them. If you go through them, there is a specific Egyptian god that the ten plagues were showing, where God was showing that he is truly Yahweh Elohim. Letting them know that for all this time you've been thinking that these gods have power. What I'm trying to let you know is that as powerful as they may seem, they have no power over me. But I love it. The last two, the last two was God really showing just how great he was. The, the plague number nine was the plague of darkness where God shut the sun off. He, he closed the skies and it was dark for three days. Well, their second most powerful God in Egypt was a God called Ra. Ra was the sun God. And since he was the second most powerful God, what God was saying to Ra is basically, Ra is not powerful than Yahweh. And I'll show you how powerful I am. I'll shut the sun off and then show me where Ra has the power to bring it back up. And the sun didn't come back up until Yahweh God gave permission for it to do so. That's the second most powerful God. The first most powerful God in Egyptian culture was Pharaoh himself. And when you read, man, the plays and the conversations, Pharaoh was full of himself. Pharaoh thought that he was the king. Pharaoh, Pharaoh would say things like, I alone am the one who were able to deliver these people. You ever heard something like that before? Nonsense, right? Pharaoh was speaking because he thought he was the most powerful God, the most powerful being on the planet. And so, plague number 10, the plague of the firstborn child was specifically against Pharaoh, the Pharaoh who just not that many years before issued a decree to murder every baby Hebrew boy in town. So what God says to Pharaoh is, you don't have power to take life or to control life. Yahweh Elohim does. And so specifically targeting Pharaoh, God makes a statement that I am the Lord your God, and you should have no other God, none of those other ten, not Rod, not Pharaoh, none of them have even the slightest bit or the slightest chance of being before me. And so for generations, this is all the Hebrews knew. 
They knew the abuse that came from being in this, in this polytheistic culture where the gods were, they were fickle and they changed depending upon the behavior of the people. God is trying to establish a little bit of solidarity, a little bit of, uh, of tradition and focus for the people so that they would know who their God is. And so this cruel God, this oppressive leadership, that's why when Moses sees the two Hebrews fighting, what he's seeing is a byproduct of them living into the reality of the oppressive culture that they were a part of. And Moses is like, we've got to become free of this. We've got to become free of this. And so God sees this. He sees the hurting people. And he says, I want my people to live in a society where they no longer fear abuse, where they no longer fear the bondage that comes from people and relationships. Question for you. Wouldn't you like to live in that place where the people that you were in relationship with, you knew that they had your best intentions in mind, where there was no abuse, where people spoke well of each other, where there was no backbiting, where, where people looked at you and they, they looked at the God on the inside of you rather than looking at the mistakes and the sins that we often find ourselves. When you love to be in a place where you can walk into a room and you know that people love you unconditionally, when you love to be in a place where people don't take your words and they don't twist them and people don't abuse you or don't talk down to you or people only lift you up, isn't that the type of world that we would all like to live in? What God says is this is the world that I want my people to live in. A free people ought to live in a world where they are surrounded around people who think well of them, who will not abuse them, and people who will look out for them. This is what God is creating. And so what God has done in his first statement then is he has modeled for them what the relationships look like. He says, I am the Lord your God who has delivered you out of the house of Egypt from the land of slavery. That's modeled. He modeled that for them. When you're in relationship with someone, in that relationship, that person will model for you how you ought to be loved. That's why um, and, and when we do baby blessings here. Uh, one of the things that we do is we, we talk to the parents and we tell the parents that how they love one another will be a model for how your child learns how to love and be loved. Uh, parents, uh, how you love and how you are in relationship, it doesn't always have to be intimately. How you do in relationships, you model for your children how they ought to be in relationships. So if you love well... I ain't saying that it's always going to be the case, but at least they will learn to love well. You model. God modeled it first for them what relationships ought to be like. And so what God is doing, he's modeling it. Therefore, what this means to us is when we're in any kind of relationship, there should be some questions that we ought to ask. And let me give you a couple of questions. I'm going to get out of your hair today. Uh, one of the first questions that we ought to ask in relationships is this. Uh, does this relationship enslave or empower me? Does this relationship enslave or empower me? Now, I know that you're not enslaved as the Hebrew people were. We, we, we have been blessed for that not to be our story. And I also know that it is in lofty expectation to be in a relationship with people intimately or otherwise and say that they have power enough to enslave or empower us. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about in that sense. What I'm talking about, when God delivered the people, he delivered them into something that was life-giving. So when we're asking the question, are the people that you're in relationship enslaving or empowering you, basically, I just want to know, are the people in the relationship with you currently, are they life-giving to you? 
or are they life-draining for you? And if you're in a relationship with people and they're not life-giving, they're life-draining, you need to strongly reconsider as to whether or not that's the type of relationship that, you, that you're in. Because what God modeled for the Hebrew people when he delivered them is in relationship with people, what happens ultimately is life comes, empowerment comes. You feel better about yourself. You have more energy for your life. You know how to love well. The reason why is because that has been reciprocated from those that you are in relationship with. And anytime, anytime that you're in a relationship with somebody and it is not life-giving and it is enslaving instead of empowering, ultimately that is not a relationship. That is what we call a situation. Plus, anytime that you regularly participate in something that is draining, that is the definition of bondage. If you regularly participate in something that sucks the life out of you, that is the definition of bondage. Think about the, the guy that we encountered on, on the street just a couple of weeks ago as we was out there cooking hot dogs. Wayne, you remember we invited him to the table to eat. He wouldn't come to the table to eat because he condemned. He didn't even want to receive the love that we gave him. And I asked him, brother, why won't you just take a sandwich? And he says, because I'm just a drunk. Bondage. Because it was sucking the life out of him. It would not allow him to fully walk into who he was. If you were in something that is draining you, it is bondage. Your job could be bondage. If you wake up each and every day and it is sucking the life out of you, if you can't find joy, if you can't find peace, if you can't go to sleep at night, if you are suffering and struggling, if that is the case, that is bondage. And the God that we serve says, I am Yahweh Elohim, the God who delivered you from the land of Egypt, from the house of slavery, and I did not create you to live as slaves to anything in our culture. So, Rev, quit my job. I ain't say that. I didn't say I didn't say, I didn't say that, but if the Lord is speaking to you, and if the Lord is telling you that I did not create you to live in this drained existence, you got to ask the Lord, well, Lord, what are my steps? How do I get up out of this situation? How do I get up out of this relationship? How do I get up out of this thing that is draining me? Because you didn't create me to live in this drained, life-sucking existence. And God did not create you to live, to suck the life of you. In fact, he said, I've come that you might have life and live it to the fullest. So each and every day, we ought to wake up asking the Lord, how do I live a full life? And anything that is blocking us from walking into the full life of existence that God has created us for isn't something that ought to be a part of our existence. you got to let it go. Is this relationship, is it enslaving or empowering? And then I have to throw this in because Christians, especially Western Christians, we, we always do a good job of making ourselves the victims. So here's the second question. Does my view of God inform my view of humanity? Does my view of God inform my view of humanity? This, this actually, actually even informs the first question because oftentimes what we do is we base how we relate to God dependent upon how we relate to humanity. So... Because this is my experience with people. This is who God is. I hear it all the time. And that, that's just, that's bass backwards. That's not the way that you ought, ought to live. That's, that's not how we were created. That's, you, you should never look at humanity first and determine how you ought to deal with God. It, that's not 
that's not the right way of looking at it. I, I heard it just, just a few moments ago when Matt was talking about Father's Day. And, he, and we always have to throw in the caveat that even if Father's Day is tough for you, uh, because what happens oftentimes when we think about fatherhood, uh, there's so much brokenness. And so many of us sit with our daddy issues. And because of our daddy issues, we can't refer to God as father because we bring our daddy issues to the table as if God is your daddy. God is your heavenly father, but he's not that father. And it doesn't matter if you had a bad father or a good father. As bad as your father is, of course it's not God because God is always good. And as good as your father is, your, God can never, your father can never be good enough to even be on the level of God. God's in a class all by himself. But what happens to us or within us is we look at our view of people and we say, okay, this is who God is. This is how good God is. This is how God behaves. So when we sin or when we mess up, what we then do is we say, okay, because people turn their back on me and because people condemn me, then God does. But God does not do that. God is the liberator. God is the one who frees. But it's not always about that even. It's not always about good people or bad people or that. Um, it's also about how we view people because of how we view God. If, if, if I view God properly and, and I see Yahweh Elohim for who he is, then it allows me to properly see you. That I can look at you as one created by Yahweh Elohim, by the Lord our God, as one delivered by the Lord our God. So I can look past the things that I have hangups about because I am now looking at humanity through God-colored lenses. And when I look at humanity through God-colored lenses, whatever issues that I have, I can now lay those things to the side because what's most important is that you were created in the image of God. So, does the relationship that you're in, do they enslave or empower you, but also does your view of God inform your view of his creation? And then this last thought, and we'll get ready to get out of here. Um, God said that I'll have no other gods before me. And there's something very specific that he's saying there. It's, again, it's not the order of things. And uh, keep in mind what we know now uh, in modern culture that the gods of Egypt aren't even real. They don't even exist. So it would be nonsensical to think that God then is talking about an order or really even about gods who don't exist. So this is literally, he's not even talking about the gods themselves. Uh, when you translate that in his original language, when he said there should be no other gods before me, what he's literally saying, there should be no other gods um, before my face. I, I don't want to see it. But he's, again, those gods does, don't exist, so he's not saying, I don't want to see those gods. What God is saying in a free society, a place where people have been delivered and they live free, in that land, what I don't want to see from a free people is the behavior that comes from bondage. I don't want to see the byproduct of you submitting yourself to those foreign gods. I don't want to see the bondage that comes from you being in relationship to those foreign gods. God is saying in order for a free society to live and to exist, then the foreign gods and their influence have to be resisted. 
So you ask yourself the question, well, I don't, I don't know, I don't know where, where that is currently today. Where, where are the foreign gods at? And uh, I thought about this show. Uh, I'm not recommending that you watch it. I know one person here does, me and Josh, because we watch uh, a lot of the same things. But there's a show called American Gods. And, and, and in the show American Gods, there are these, these characters who represent the modern gods of the day. So you've got Mr. World. Yeah, and Mr. World represents exactly what you think it is. It is the world around us and all of its influences. And because we worship the world, worship the world and all that it is and all that it gives to us, a God was created from that. There's Mr. Media. Yeah, Mr. Media exactly is. As a matter of fact, some of y'all can't wait to get into it right now. Some of y'all are so good, y'all probably own it and y'all can't even see it. You got your heads up and you're good. Mr. Media grows up out of that. And, and there's all these gods who were created because humanity has allowed those things to influence their lives and their existence. So God is saying, not that I don't want you to care about the world or to care about media. Those petty things aren't the conversation. But when you look at your life and you look at how much influence it has over you, are you in bondage to that thing? Does the world, are you so bound to the world and to all of its influences and to everything that it does and all that it brings that you don't want to introduce your neighbor to the God who transcends this world? Are you so married to this world and all of its influences? Can you not see the toxicity of much of it? Can you not see how harmful much of it? Are you so married to media that it interferes with your family time and how you engage your children in your vehicles and your cars or when you're, when you're just in the room together? Are you so married to those things that you are not able to live and lead and walk into the fullness of the existence that God has created for you? God says, if those things drain and take from you, then they enslave you and you are in bondage. And those are the things that I don't want before my face. Those are the things that are enslaving you. And I created you to live free. Amen? Amen. Amen. Come on, let's stand and get ready to get out of here.